Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Big Interview Classical Q&A Show. I'm Martin Gregg and with me today are Graeme Hunter, host of the Big Interview and our guest for these shows, La Liga TV's Pete Jensen. We have questions, as always, from our socios who support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Graeme Hunter and our sponsors at Bet365. One more socio has joined us since our recording on Friday. Welcome to Ali. Ali, thanks for joining up and I hope you enjoy all our socio content. Today, we are focusing our attentions on yesterday's Classical, which finished Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2. First half strike from David Alaba and then a late second from Lucas Vasquez secured the points before Cunaguero's extremely late consolation for the home side. So that is now three Classical defeats in a row for Ronald Koeman's Barcelona. Chaps, before we get into the questions, maybe you could both just give us your general reflections on the match, but maybe also the occasion, because I think this was the, the first time we had just about a full house classical since the pandemic. Well, I, I want to butt in immediately and, and say that, you know, Barcelona come out of the classical as our heroes um, and, and brilliant organisation and big game temperament because they seated Pete and I next to one another. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive because they knew this was coming. First time Monday morning, so why don't we put the lads together in a sort of one, one formation, which was magical. Back to the old days, nobody plays 1-1 anymore. So, um, listen, Pete, I, I, we, we haven't rehearsed this at all. The, the, the biggest thing I take away from yesterday was um, the fact that we had thrills, the fact that we had moments of inspiration, and the fact that we had Camp Now with 86,000 souls there, I had not expected such a big crowd, such as the disaffection in Catalonia for Football Club Barcelona. Clearly, there were masses of tourists. I bumped into a socio of this show um, from Oklahoma, a doctor who, who was staying over the weekend in a hostel. He said, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm a doctor. I haven't stayed in a hostel since I was 16, but I'm doing it because... I had to come to the Glasgow and my wife said, go, go do your thing. And um, that helped that, that, that there were so many tourists there um, swelling the crowd, helped make it an 86,000. But the, the the noise when the game ebbed and flowed was beautiful. And there was, there was when the second Madrid goal goes in, there was down to, to the right hand of where Pete and I, there was a roar. And a classical, you don't often hear away fans really roaring. It was a gigantic roar down in the, the, the foot of what's called the tribuna. 
and there were lots and lots of white-shirted fans. Again, I guess tourists because the the Madrid the travelling fans section, which is up way up in the gods to our right hand, way up to over the right shoulder of the goalkeeper who's in the goal suit, um, was was empty. So in in terms of tickets taken up from Madrid's official um, travelling fan supply, it seemed to be low. They went elsewhere in the ground. The only time I can remember such a big roar at a Clasico was the Champions League first leg in 2011 when when Messi scores that goal, the second goal of his, and because the Champions League crowd allocation is different, there's a huge burst contingent behind the goal and the roar there. But those, I'll take those away in my in my sort of subliminal memory for a long time. The noise, the colour, the pageant, the fact that it was a decent classical. Um, maybe skills levels we'll talk about, but in terms of incident, in terms of moments of inspiration and noise, colour, that's what I'll take away. You did fear for the mosaic um, because all the predictions were that it, it was going to be a really low cloud and crowd and obviously you can't really spell out anything if you haven't got the, the punters to hold up the cards. Um, but actually, actually it looked fine, didn't it? Uh, 88,600, I think it was, in, in the end. And as Graham says, there were more than usual amount of Real Madrid supporters there. Not just tourists, but you have to remember there are a lot of Madrid fans that live in Barcelona just as there are a lot of Barcelona fans that live in Madrid. Um, and with 26,000 Barca uh, season ticket holders sort of suspending their season ticket for one year then there are more tickets up for grabs on the day of the game and, and there, were, there were quite a few Madrid fans inside the stadium um, my takeaway from the game I thought the goal was brilliant I thought the goal was absolutely fantastic um, and we'll talk about it in, in a moment I'm sure and you can pick apart the errors but I thought but, uh, Madrid played it brilliantly and just the physical difference as well between the two sides Lucas Vasquez the Madrid right back runs the length of the pitch in the 94th minute or whatever it was to, to score the winning goal Madrid are, are above Barcelona at the moment on, on pretty much every level and um, you know it was just another, another grim afternoon in football terms for Barca fans yeah, I mean, I think we should talk about that fantastic opening goal, but we've got a first question from socio Ian Body who says, how crucial was a miss by Dest? Heads seemed to drop in quickly after the Madrid goal. Um, so the Dest chance was in 26 minutes, I think. Um, Alaba's strike was six minutes later. I mean, that that really felt like a turning point, didn't it? So so maybe we could reflect on on you know the significance of that miss, but also just just dissect the, the, the beauty of, of that opening goal as well. We're into pure hypotheses now because you, you don't you don't know whether if that goal would have stung Real Madrid into further action. You don't know. Simply looking back arithmetically, if Dest puts away a, a glaring chance, I mean maybe not giving not the best chance because Cunaguero's chance was really laid beautifully onto his right foot by Dest, but the second best chance of the match, and he should have scored. But what I'll say. It, it, to Ian is that it, it needs to fit into a context. If he saw shoulders slumping, it fits into the context of Pique coming away from a game recently saying we could have played for you know, four hours and not scored. Koeman talking about, you know, we, we aren't generating enough chances and therefore we need efficacy. We need to tuck away the chances that we are getting. I think what Ian's eyes detected was rather than, well, now we're beaten, it was, well, there goes another chance. Because right across their their very worst results, apart from the Bayern Munich game, they've created chances. It, away in Lisbon against Benfica, Barcelona created sufficient chances to have, to have scored 
not not that there were three sniffs at goal. There were sufficient good chances to have scored three times. They didn't. So anybody who's played any level of competitive sport where the team does 95% right on several occasions, but the, the finishers, try scorers, or whether it be somebody in, in tennis doubles not tucking away a, a, a volley and smashing it, or back to football, when the strikers aren't, or when everybody, whoever is in, in front of goal, because Desti's a very makeshift winger, doesn't tuck things away, then it, it, it clearly nudges you psychologically. But I think it, Ian, I, well, at least I think it needs to go into the, the context of Busser going, well, geez, if, if we didn't score that one, where is, where is our goal today coming from? Yeah, I thought it was interesting after the game that Kuman seemed to focus in on that rather than talking about the defending for the goal and, and various other things. Um, it was very early in the game and I think you're an, you're, a, you're an extreme optimist if you think that if Deftas scored that then Barca are now strong enough as a team to kind of uh, to make the most of that and see out the rest of the game and, and, and hit Madrid on the break as Madrid ball forward. I just don't think that would have been the story of the game. I think Madrid would have reacted differently. I thought Madrid played within themselves um, and yeah, I, I don't see that as... I, I just don't think Des missing that was the reason why Barcelona lost the, the Classic. Absolutely not. Going back to the, the opening goal, very often goals can, can be traced back to one one source. There was there was a moment in the Watford-Liverpool game, I think it was last weekend, which had me incandescent when uh, Mo Salah out-muscled Danny Rose on the left-hand side and then played a brilliant ball through to um, Manny, I think, who scored. And I just thought it was a, an appalling attempt at defending by, by Danny Rose. But, Graham, I was reading your excellent ESPN column and you were talking about Depay's decision-making, the way he gave away possession on, on the edge of the edge of the box which 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 led to the the counter-attack can you reflect a bit on that because that was a really interesting point if you take it right back to that moment well this is a nice split because people pick up the way in which Roman did then win possession and, and what they do with it because that was his specialty he was live reporting on the day I was able just to sit back you know scratch my chin and then write on the whistle which is a, a huge luxury yeah Martin the, the thing that it, it does drive me mad, and it certainly doesn't drive me mad because he's wearing a Barcelona shirt. This, this drives me mad in any sh- striker who's, who has to understand that his premium task is scoring, but in order to do that, the premium task is, is looking after the ball. We've, we've all, in each of the three of us, and everybody listening, has grown up watching a striker saying, if that ball comes to me, because I might only get 18 or 19 meaningful touches in the match and therefore when that ball comes to me it sticks maybe I wasn't old enough to to see Dennis Law in his prime Aberdeen's finest but the ones that really stand out to me were watching Steve Archibald at Aberdeen and subsequently at Spurs and and Barcelona but Mark Hughes when the ball came into him and all right they're different footballers from Depay it begs the question what is Depay when the ball comes in before you think about your tricks, before you make the crucial decision about does ego or team spirit take over, can control the ball. Now, twice before what became a fatal mistake from Dubai in that game, the ball had come to him and it had rolled past his foot because his little boyish head was thinking, it's the classical, they're all going to love me. Messi's gone. I can be the superstar. 
He'd had a message given to him by Koeman, in my opinion, in midweek where he's taken off against Dinamo. And he walks two-thirds of the stadium, goes off at the far side, comes round. And, and in his head, you can see his, his face. He's like, wait, this is Koeman and I'm being taken off. And he doesn't go in a stop, but he's like, well, something's wrong here. Is it, they must have held up the wrong number. And he's he's not pleased. The fans give him a bit of an ovation as he goes round. And Koeman goes looking for him because he knows that the pies nose is up joint. Koeman goes looking for him across the technical area just to do that stupid low five that everybody does now. The key thing about Depay is that during the game, his his little need to entertain and to be the star and to be loved had overtaken his head at a time when he should control the ball. So people pick up and tell how it goes badly wrong against Madrid. But it's the same thing against Atleti. When they're in the Metropolitano a couple of weeks ago and they're ultimately going to suffer a, a, a big, stinging, important defeat for which is based around small mistakes. Depay gives the ball away for the first goal and Barcelona cannot all season and for a couple of seasons now. They can't, they're they so bad positionally where everybody pretty much invents where they think they should be in a given moment compared to the era that all three of us were lucky enough to experience, particularly under Guardiola, to some extent Racker, but particularly under Guardiola, where at all stages in the game, it wasn't the fact you had 11 geniuses in the pitch. They were rigorously attentive to, if this ball is lost, where should I be? What should I be ready to do? Who should I be nearest to? Uh, how quickly should I or shouldn't I put all this kind of stuff? That stuff is shredded. That's all lying on, you know, the office floor. And therefore, Depay losing the ball as a double criminality. Uh, and the first is it's his job to control it and use it properly instead of thinking about how to show off. And the second is there has been evidence this season already that if he gives the ball away loosely and kind of looks at heavens to say, well, you know, that's my job. I'm an artist, baby then his team's going to suffer and it did. And the, the, the thing is, he starts run, He starts running. He, 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 he sees that Alaba's got in ahead of him and, and, and off Alaba goes and Depay, Depay goes with him and then he stops. He just thinks, oh, that's enough of that. Uh, I'm sure this isn't going to end, <laughs> isn't going to end badly. Um, and uh, we, we, we rightly bigged up uh, Vinicius before the game and I thought he was brilliant, um, probably along with Alaba, man, man of the match for, for Madrid. Um, and he's fantastic. He just skips past Minguesa, um, and then the Vinicius of old might have put his head down and, and just and just carried it forward, but he doesn't. He looks up. He sees Rodrigo. He immediately switches the play. Um, Rodrigo um, has been given a little bit of space because Benzema has made another one of his intelligent runs and has taken the two central defenders with him. Um, and Rodrigo gives it back to Alaba, and, it, and it's a sensational finish. Um, uh, just one quick point, Barcelona, when did, when did Dani Alves leave? I mean, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? Um, the failure to, to, to buy a right back. Um, and they didn't need to buy another Dani Alves because Jordi Alba was now the Dani Alves. They needed to buy a proper right back. And where we must be five or six years into it, we've had Semedo, we've had Emerson, um, and, and now it's Dest, and it wasn't Dest yesterday, it was, it was Mingessa. Um, a good solid right back would have would have, would have brought Vinicius down probably if, if he couldn't have taken the ball off him he would have stopped the move. Um, but deep but Memphis failing to track uh, Alaba, Mengesa failing to deal with Vinicius and Madrid just brutally punishing them. It, it was the moment of the game and and it, and it really decided the way the points went. 
Martin, I don't need to rant like I did about Dubai, about Eric Garcia, but as Pete's point about Vinicius, which was is a crucial match-changing moment where he doesn't do what's natural, but he does think, which he's been doing for 18 months now, and, and puts the ball right. If you look at the reverse camera angle, you know, in, in live time, you're following the ball, so I didn't see it as clearly. I did go back and I looked at it on my scout, and if you look at the reverse camera angle whereby you're... You, Vinicius opens his body and plays it right. Pique is left centre-back at this stage, in this moment, and, and Eric Garcia right centre-back. And so Pique's going out towards Rodrigo, and Eric Garcia goes out there too, as if he's on a rope, as if they're roped together. And you're like, wait, wait, son, what, what? You know, it's like ball-watching. It's like, well, the ball's over there. But no, well, if the ball's been put over there, when we, when we have any team you think, when we have the ball and we do that switch... What's coming next? Oh, yeah, I know. It'll come back this way because, you know, and and the level of analysis going on in Garcia's head for a guy who was brought up in La Masia and for the last few years has been taught by Pep Guardiola, you're like, you know, it was supine, it was bovine. What are, you, what are you thinking about? And again, fair play to Alaba for punching into that hole and finishing like Pete described, but analytically... If you go back, one of the things, the conclusions I came away with was that the Barcelona right now are like that same you see in the gym, the definition of madness. He's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Koeman's not teaching them properly. Hmm. I mean, it certainly tallies with the amount of time that Alba had to get the strike off because he really measures it. I mean, he, he, he gets it out from his feet. He looks up. He looks down and then he strikes it beautifully. And it is a beautiful strike, but he had a lot of time. Right across the pitch, Pete. Didn't you feel that that Martin's motif there is that that Madrid had quite a lot of time in order to think about passes to make decisions when they didn't they aggressively pressed and closed. But the difference in in, in aggression levels, the difference in physicality, we saw it in the first goal, we saw it in the second goal as well because Lucas Vasquez is going to get there and and um, Eric Garcia isn't. Okay, we're going to talk a bit more about Vinicius in a moment, but it's time for a break. We'll be back in a moment with a couple more questions to complete this month's classical Q&A Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And we're back with a question from Socio Taylor Collard. Hi, Graham and Pete. A fascinating game. I loved your pre-match analysis of Vinicius and the role he could have in the game. I thought he was superb throughout. 
I would love to know who you both felt was unsung hero of the game. Thanks as always, Taylor. So a, a kind of twofold question here. Maybe we can talk a bit about Vinicius, but Taylor's also looking for an unsung hero of the game. I would um, I would pick out Rodrigo because I thought uh, I mean when you asked us both before the game who was going to be the key man I said Alba and it was it was a bit of a strange answer wasn't it really but but Alba can can cause problems for opposition he's the he's the player who, who, who who's most effective high and wide getting crosses into the area and Madrid have a history of not being able to deal with him and and it was Rodrigo's job to deal with him and Rodrigo did deal with him and there was lots of sacrifice from Rodrigo so if we're looking for for an unsung hero and also in many ways he's what makes that front three work because you, you hear Madrid fans and you hear football commentators in Spain talking about well the thing about Vinicius is he's not he's not tracking back he's he's having 10 minutes where he's he's not doing his running you don't want Vinicius tracking back Cristiano Ronaldo played the whole game in one half when he was at Real Madrid and that's what you want Vinicius doing you don't want Vinicius spending too much time in the opposition's half he can still work but he do his work at the other end of the pitch stretching the stretching the pitch being on the shoulder of the last defender now he can't do that if the guy on the other side is doing the same thing so Rodrigo has to be has to, there has to be sacrifice to Rodrigo's game. There was a big debate before the Clásico about whether whether Valverde was going to play. Valverde can do that, and Rodrigo proved that he can do it as well. He kept Jordi Alba very very quiet. Um, so I would pick him out as the unsung, um, and and Vinicius, as Graham told us, he would be before the before the game was, was brilliant. TC, thanks for the question. I, I suppose I, I'm definitely going to go for a man wearing a white shirt. And this one might seem a little bit odd because I think people understand how excelsior brilliant Modric remains in his mid-30s. But he gobbled that bus on a midfield up. He absolutely, he swallowed up Frankie de Jong and had poor old Gavi for afters. There was a stage at which during, and again I was really fortunate in that I didn't have to follow the the minute by minute and, and be registering it and writing it. So I just tried to sit back and look a little bit at what was developing the patterns, just ideas. They're just reaching for things that might then become a theme later on. And within 20 minutes, 22 minutes, I had noted down something like that, Modric had had markers in each of the three Barcelona midfielders. So his positional moves had meant that, first of all, De Jong thought he was his and De Jong couldn't keep track of him. Then Modric's <clears throat> change of ideas meant that it was more Busquets and then eventually Gabi. But it, it, it wasn't simply that he was giving those three the runaround. It was his perpetual motion and the way in which his teammates understood how to use that. Because Modric often goes into positions whereby if, if a lesser player chose to be where he was, you'd say, well, he's out of the game. That That's not much use. But what happens is, he can do because he can literally, as as you know. Sometimes I think as describers of games, we reach for phrases, and sometimes phrases get re- reused all the time, and they lose a bit of meaning. But Modric can literally do everything, literally on the pitch, everything, and therefore, it, a little comparison, two comparisons would be that makes him my uh, slightly undersung hero of the match because um, Ancelotti did a rare thing and joined us in really praising Vinicius. First of all, there were huge chunks of the first half where Ansu was like, you know, okay, I'm not making a run in behind, but I've come short, give me the ball, and they didn't. His confidence is so high that he he, in, he wants to play five-a-side football in small spaces, and he's capable of doing it too. 
because beyond his finishing and his sprint, he's a really deft, intelligent footballer who can create things whether the team is on the break, where he's at his absolute best, or whether things are crowded. And Barcelona consistently didn't give him the ball. Whereas with Modric, when he drops into a pocket of space, they know that he can quarterback it. So if he's dropped in behind, you know, in, in between the centre-halves, he'll be given the ball instead of like putting it wide or whatever. Well, if Modric wants it, there's a, tr- there's a track record where we should give it to him. And then he'll be, he'll immediately, he's perpetual motion. Once he's laid the ball off, he's on the move again saying, well, I'm here for it. And one of my motifs of the game was him running, running around with arms stretched out like this. As in, why didn't you finish that chance? Why didn't you give the right pass? Why are we still not bossing this game? And and you look back on the tape and you'll see it time and time again. Boss, leader, demanding, playing. He can't play like this every game at, at 36. That's not feasible. And there is a danger that when either he's man-marked, which Barcelona naively didn't do, or when the rest of the team isn't quite functioning, you can run past Modric because his sprint is no longer what it was. But the second comparison is to Frankie de Jong, who looked pale and confused, didn't do meaningful things with the ball, didn't find space, walked a lot. Um, I don't know if he thought he was imitating Messi about like seeing spaces and people and patterns or whatever, but taken off. And Frankie de Jong, who, who's had a mixed season, particularly since an, an Excelsior game against Benfica in, in a huge defeat in Lisbon, He's had an increasingly pale season. And when your great validator, Ronald Koeman, in a match which, if it goes badly wrong, can determine the coach's future, when your great validator takes you off in a classical, you've had a poor day. And I, I think I saw Modric just going... <coughs> Penultimate question from socio Andy Symes, who says, where does this result leave Ronald Koeman. Now, I'd like to maybe quote your ESPN column again, Graham, because you make a really interesting point. You say, Koeman has become more adept at fighting for his continued employment than at correcting individual and collective flaws, which means there is little individual improvement. Now, I thought that was a really good point because when you put aside the soap opera of you know his future, will he stay or will he go, and you actually look at the evidence, which is really what, what, our, what our job should be, there doesn't seem to be enough evidence that he's actually influencing performance levels. You you sat with me um, in, um, I think it was the French side of the Lake Geneva, when we went to do Van Dyke. And if you remember, I said to Van Dyke, um, and, and I was expressing my honest opinion, that I'd seen him at Celtic. I'd seen him even in a thrashing for Celtic at Camp Nou. And it, it had stood out to me that he was Premier League ready then. So, you were my witness. I put it to him and I said, listen, when you left Celtic for Southampton, Virgil, in my opinion, you were already ready for a top four team. And he said, nah, I needed the Cumin years. I needed to be, to be coached, to be changed by him. And he, he told us that he felt bullied. He felt picked upon. He felt that it was a Dutchman showing the other players at Southampton. There are no favourites. And he would do things right, particularly in his version of it anyway, in rondos. And still Koeman would be on him all the time. And as the three of us have heard in umpteen interviews, the player retrospectively goes, ah, the coach was right. You know, he changed me. I benefited from that. What I'm doing at Liverpool is that 
there are other um, examples, and I'm, I'm lucky in that um, I know both Benny McCarthy, who was then gone for Ajax, and Stephen Pienaar. And Pienaar, I went to with uh, Rob Moore to watch Ajax playing AC Milan in, in what I think was the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And Ajax were winning until the very last minutes in San Siro and John Tal Thomason put them out in just about added time. And that was a side where Koeman taught, just like we're mentioning about Virgil van Dijk. It's a side where, and equally, I, I can't remember, Pete, if you were at this, when, when Koeman was Benfica manager and he took, um, I think it was a, a nil-nil draw in Lisbon in the semi-finals of the Champions League when Rijkaard's side win in Paris that season, so it's 2005. And his Benfica side, having already knocked Liverpool out, were at the camp now with a chance, only 1-0 down an aggregate with two, three minutes left. I think it was Mikkeli in front of goal to to score the 1-1 goal and go through ultimately. He misses the chance, Brussels score a second. But that Benfica side absolutely tested the top pass on a side to its limits because they knew exactly what to do. They were brilliantly drilled. He had a side whereby man for man there was literally no comparison with Barcelona. And in Ajax's terms, there was a skill deficit towards Milan, yet they very nearly went through. And you look at what you see for Football Club Barcelona at the moment, where mistakes are repetitive, whereas there there's absolutely no drilling, for example, about who does what at corners defensively. There's no drilling about pos- uh, positional play and decision-making. Barcelona are a side right now whereby they are, Pete used to phrase it a couple of times, about physicality and athleticism. The the training sessions are, are adequate and no better. Top teams around Europe are training longer and harder. When Kun Aguero arrived at, at Barcelona, he... Ancelotti raised his eyebrow about the comparative standards and demands about Manchester City's training regime and Football Club Barcelona's training regime. Now, ultimately, that's Koeman's responsibility. And his and I have massive sympathy for him because everybody, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast, I certainly speak from personal experience, has been in, in an employment situation where you feel marginalised or got at or you think your job's in danger and, and the, the, the fight or flight instinct kicks in and, and you, you fight. He's doing that and succeeding at the moment and, and he's not doing the thing that he's paid to do, which is to coach and improve the team. And when Barcelona do well at the moment, because they won their first game of this crucial week and then the midweek game, you, you're looking at largely individuals producing something interesting or special rather than saying, yeah, you can noticeably see how the team is performing. He's played 4-3-3, Martin, for heaven's sake, because the, the president's ordered him to do it. For my, in my opinion, any decision right now other than deciding that Koeman is, is a paper-thin version of the best of himself and therefore it's time to move. Anything else is just treading water. Um, I'm... I'm Defending Koeman, it's become becoming increasingly difficult and feels increasingly ridiculous. Um, 
Uh, I still see him as a symptom, not a cause of the problems. I think everything that Graham's talking about is, is, is on the money. But w- when do you instill all those mechanisms into the team? When do you get the team absolutely super fit? When do you, you really drill the players? Well, you do it in pre-season before things start. And what happened in pre-season at Barcelona? Koeman probably walked into the dressing room at the, you know, the start of pre-season and said, well, you're all up for sale. Let's see who's still here on the first day of the season. That was the situation that, um, that he had to deal with. Um, and that, you know, you know, that's it's always going to be difficult to to hit the ground running at the start of the season when you come through a summer of such uncertainty, when no one knew if they were going to be there. It was all going to depend not whether the club wanted to keep them or not, but what offers came in. Um, changing him now, I, the, the problem I have with the criticism of Koeman is, uh, um, and I, and I think the, the fitness is is something that can definitely be be put his way, but. Who is he leaving out? What, what decisions is he making in terms of selection? It's very rare that before a game you look at the team and you think, well, why is he, why is he not playing? Um, even with, in terms of the, the changes that he's making in games, um, I just think that what, 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 what is there, he really is... I'm not going to say getting the best out of it because he's clearly not getting the best out of Frankie de Jong, for example... But um, I think it will be very hard for anyone to come in. The, who are the players on the shortlist the last time they thought about changing the manager? Pirlo, Xavi, uh, Roberto Martinez. can't remember the fourth man. Um, I mean, Xavi would be fantastic, but um, it would take a couple of years and, 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 and Barcelona would have to suffer maybe even maybe a season outside of, outside of the Champions League. I don't think the impact would be instant from Xavi because I think what he would want to do would be long-term. Um, and possibly, likewise, Roberto Martinez. Pirlo replacing um, Koeman, that doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, in terms of what the immediate future holds for him, he drove out the ground last night and um, his car was surrounded by... Um, and there's always a, a kind of a, a group of fans outside the gates of the stadium and they're basically waiting just to snap players as they come out in their cars. Um, and they surrounded Koeman's car and Koeman couldn't uh, drive away and it, and it went on for a couple of minutes. It wasn't nasty. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, banging on the bonnet of the car um, and eventually he was able to he was able to drive away, and there was a little bit of abuse right at the end. Most of the fans there just wanted a picture, basically with with, with Kuman in the background. But Kuman completely unprotected, no security, uh, no club officials making sure he could drive away from the stadium properly. And that seemed like the perfect metaphor. He's not been protected from day one. We all knew Laporta wanted to get rid of him, and could, didn't get rid of him because he couldn't replace him. That put him in an awkward position. It was a horrible summer, and we're seeing the fruits of that now. And um, I just think whoever comes in now, I just think they would find it very, very difficult to turn things around. Pete, that's pre- I, I, I mean, I really welcome counterbalance and, and such smart contextual argument. But to, to lay this down as a marker, in case before the next time we three are together doing this, there is a change. I, I'll say two things. A coach's role, irrespective of the hugely difficult circumstances that he's been given and given the fact that Laporta hung him out to dry in May when he publicly said well yeah okay there's nobody else you know that's that's deadly but the teach to treat phenomenon is really important Laporta treated Koeman in such a way that he undermined him fatally undermined him and Koeman did the same to the players when he was saying you know, don't expect us to compete. Don't expect us to be. It doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter what the truth is. You never, ever, ever undermine the players and give them reasons to think, well, listen, 
7 out of 10 is good enough this season. In terms of his judgment about, you know, this is just one issue, about how to make the best of the situation and how to make that sure that the whole is as big as the sum of the parts. His head was in, I can't be blamed, this isn't my fault. Good coaches who've got their eye on the ball, irrespective of the circumstances, circle the wagons. He was on the outside shooting arrows in at his own players. That that ain't right. And and this is my final point and my final point on this subject anyway. I I feel differently about Xavi and not out of affection. I think that this side is perfectly full of ability as far as the season goes. I feel that this side can be competitive uh, and perhaps win the title if properly coached. And I think Xavi, my opinion is Xavi would have an instant impact because what they're crying out for is is not the proof that Xavi is an extraordinary Einstein coach. What they need instilled are the very things that Xavi lives and breathes. And I think it's actually the reverse. Whether he would go on to prove without any question that he's an exceptional man-manager, that he can help guide the transfer dealings, that he can tell the club adequately, this player looks fine, but he's going to need to move up. Whether he can be the guy who, man-on-man, over two, three, four seasons, inspires people to, to go above where they're at and become champions, that's to be discovered. And anybody who says that they know that is guessing, including Xavi. Right now, he has got the exact elements. It's, no, no, you don't do that, you do this. Stop doing that. This is how we... And then we... And, and and that utterly changes the season. I'm clearly not arguing that Football Club passed on that point because he can save this season. My overall opinion that he's screamingly, obviously, the right man, apart from Luis Enrique. If you, if you drop Luis Enrique into this team right now, I, I stick by my opinion that they would win this league. He's going to be far too sensible to leave the Spain job and come into this absolute boiling inferno because he's onto a good thing and life has been ultimately cruel to him and I think it's useful for him that he's he's working in, in a measured manner and spending time with his family. But I think there are two outstanding candidates out there. Gallardo none of us know about. Luis Enrique is one and if you could flick a switch and make him Barca coach tomorrow, I stick by my opinion that a fully fit, uh, fully fit with all the injuries you pick up during a season Barcelona could be competitive to win this title. And because that isn't going to happen, the obvious the obvious decision is Xavi. And what's more, when he is sending messages back, I'm ready now. And he won the cup the other day. Again, I don't know if that's now five or six trophies he's won over there. It, it doesn't prove everything. It's not a litmus test for Europe automatically. But it does show that he is winning things in, in an area where people deal players, the, 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 the royal family that own everything over there move players around at their whim. You don't get the player that you automatically want. And even in that system, which is kind of like the you know the NFL draft system, where let's make sure that everybody's just about eeksy peeksy, still he's 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 got a winning a winning franchise. So I, I really appreciate what you said about Cumin. I really appreciate that people who are listening to this who maybe only dip in now and again understand the context that he's in and, and you know fair point Pete but I have to I have to I have to speak from the heart and that's genuinely what I believe.
Okay, let's wrap up with a couple of questions from our sponsors at Bet365. I'm just going to reference the first one. Uh, how crucial for Barcelona is it for them to get Aguero fully fit and firing after he scored his first goal for the club? It's always a thing of beauty to see Aguero putting the ball in the net. Do you want to just touch on that briefly, Pete? Yeah, um, I think uh, Aguero can, can, can help Barcelona. There's no doubt about that. Was it? I think it was the Granada game when they put in 60 crosses and just scored the one goal. And he'll get on the end of crosses because he's, his movement is spectacular and his finishing is, is spectacular. In a strange way, Aguero, I think, is more used to Barcelona without Messi. I mean, the whole idea that he was brought in because he was Messi's friend. But Aguero and Messi were never particularly incredible, even when they were both at their peak. And you couldn't get away now with a forward line, a front three that included Messi and Aguero. So uh, Aguero between two quick wingers, maybe with Ansel on one side and Dembele on the other side, could work. Um, and uh, the supporters have taken to him. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're happy for what they can get at the moment, the poor Barca fans, and, and, and they've welcomed him despite the fact that uh, obviously he arrived to play with Messi and then Messi left. So I think that's definitely something to be, to be positive about. If he can um, stay fit, and as I say, between two quick wingers, that, that, you know, that could work for Kuma or whoever takes over from Kuma. Kuma, from, in my opinion, um, if fully fit, patently can score a lot of goals in this um, football club Barcelona side. What we've learned about him is that he's a good pro. He, he, he stunned Guardiola at City about his attitudes, about how important it was for him to, to play and to win, and therefore how he would regulate his diet, how hard he, he would work. And I have to tr- we all have to try and make joined-up arguments. Depay is sloppy, self-indulgent. Very talented, one of the powerful athletic players in the team. He's definitely got that upper body strength that a lot of the Barca team misses. If uh, and we saw against Dinamo, a moment where uh, Kuhn is on the on the bench and the camera hones in, and he's he's clearly I forget the two players that I think Ricky Puch is one and there's another substitute there, and he's saying and if and and he's and they're all they're wrapped, their attention is absolutely on him. So if you can take. Um, the pie aside for just I mean, a tiny example of what Kuhn can do before he's fully fit and scoring what should be 15 16 goals this season. If he with a knuckle duster or without a knuckle duster, you can t- take the pie in a corner and say, Listen, fella, this is how you control the ball, and this is what decision making is about. If you genuinely want to be the hero of this club and this fan base, you know, there's a tiny example of what Kuhn Aquero can and, and I'm certain will do. I, I think the pie's got a shot coming. When when Kuhn unleashes on him in training, saying, "Stop arsing around, concentrate, protect the ball, play the one-two, and there's your goal." Let me show you how. Final question from Bet Three Six Five: Do you think Real Madrid will go on and win the La Liga title? Um, we should point out that despite uh, Real Madrid's win yesterday, is Real Sociedad who are top of La Liga this morning after their two-two draw with Atletico Madrid last night. So I guess the question is, what about Real Madrid? Can they kick on from here in La Liga? But also maybe just uh, if you could reflect on how competitive it is at the top end of the Liga because you guys were both analysing that uh, second game last night I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do myself in Pete for alliteration purposes here because this is tipster against hipster because Martin Pete, Pete tipped Madrid at the start of the season so if we're going back on the subject at this stage we have to form a little circle and pat him on the back I did tip Madrid to win the league. Uh, I also said Villarreal will finish in the top four. They're currently 13th. So, uh, you know, you, you, you pick and choose from your, from your selections. Uh, I, I tipped them on the basis that I thought people were getting carried away with how good Atletico's squad was. I think there are holes in Atletico's squad, and, and I still think that. Um, 
can they win? The, will they win the league? Are they the favourites to win the league? I think they probably are. But uh, had um, had Atletico won last night against Real Sociedad, we would have had four teams at the top of the table tied on twenty points after ten games. So you know, we said at the start of the season it was going to be a fantastic season in terms of the competition at the top, and we can stand by that. Real Sociedad are superb. Uh, they were brilliant in the first half last night. They ran out of legs in the in the second half and, and couldn't hold on. But um, Anyone can win the league. I don't think Barca can, but I think Atleti can. I think Real Madrid can, and I think they could, I still think there could be a surprise. And, and um, I asked Graham last night in commentary if he thought Real Sociedad, and, and he thinks maybe they'll just fall a little bit short, but certainly Sevilla. Um, and I'm waiting for for Emery to wait for Real up because they're closer to the the bottom three than they are to the top four at the moment. The thing about Real Madrid is I've said this so often that. One of the reasons I moved to Spain was that you could go and you were allowed to go in and see training. And I was convinced in moving from London to Spain that seeing training would make you a better, more accurate, certainly more educated, more informed uh, journalist. Now, we don't get to do that at Madrid no more, uh, nor at Football Club Barcelona. There are still clubs around the, the country where you can actually go and watch training. And if you, if you want the, you know, 1500 mile round trip to do it, then fair enough. But but when we go and interview people, we, we are often allowed to sit and watch training. Um, and, and that's a joy. And that would help us explain what happened, say, for example, not just against Sheriff. Because Real Madrid, although they were faulty that day, pummeled Sheriff and lost to a really typical goal. The first goal that they lose is a really typical goal for Madrid to, to, to the fullbacks. We're we're praising praising Lucas so much, but both fullbacks are allowed free reign to go up and be either wide midfielders or wide attackers. Sheriff knew that they put the ball in behind. Alaba was on a little wander, and Bish Bash Bosch header one 0 But the goal that Sebastian Till scores, the Luxembourg international, is is, is just a, a fantasy winner, and Madrid create enough really good goal chances to win by five. But at Espanyol, they were outright outplayed, toe to toe outplayed. Um, they deserved to lose and they didn't lose on a counter. Okay, the punch run um, from Vidal through the midfield is resembling a counter, but it but it wasn't. It was just simply punching into areas where Roman couldn't compete, couldn't run. Now, I back Peter in, in saying that as we sit now compared to at the beginning of the season, Madrid look a really good percentage bet. I'm sure, we, I'm, I'm sure 365 has, have them as... M- relatively uh, increasingly short favourites, but there 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 are there are definite problems, and I would point out that if Benzema or Courtois got injured, there you know the, the 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 very strong dependence on them w- would be shown up, and therefore you know what Pete said in your the final part of your sponsor question, Martin, is true. There's there's a battle royale going on, and the ones who are just looking, you know over Real Madrid's shoulder despite Real Sociedad being equal top and blah 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 the ones who are looking at Real Madrid need to be saying they, they're not invulnerable we, we, if we if we stick on in there and do what Fergie used to say be in and around there in January there's a sprint finish so you know just viva la liga baby OK, that's it for our post-classical Q&A. Thanks to Pete and Graham for their time and thanks to everyone who sent in their questions. For your information, the big interview will be back tomorrow morning with Graham's chat with the legend that is Paolo Sosa. Don't miss that one. Bye for now. Listener.